Welcome to Stories from Glasgow, a podcast all about the arts and humanities with Dr. Sia Jackson. Each episode, we'll be bringing you the latest insights, news and discoveries from researchers and academics at the University of Glasgow's College of Arts. I'm delighted to welcome guest host Grace Mooney to the podcast for this episode. She's going to be in conversation with Dr Geraldine Parsons, a senior lecturer in Celtic and Gaelic Studies in the School of Humanities here at the University of Glasgow. Scotland has a wonderful, rich literary tradition that spans centuries and crosses borders. And what better example than the Gaelic tales that we share with Ireland? Today, Geraldine is going to introduce us to just one of those stories heroes, Finn McCool, and share just how his tales have survived thousands of years of storytelling and how his legacy still significantly influences Scottish culture in the present day, right through to our very landscape. Okay, so my name is Geraldine Parsons. I'm a senior lecturer in Celtic and Gaelic at the University of Glasgow, and I work on medieval and sort of pre-modern Gaelic literature or Irish literature. We can talk about how they are the same and different <laughs> if you like. So Celtic studies is my area. Cool, that's great. Well, it's really lovely to have you on today. Um, so can I ask, what literature do you work on? I'm really interested in a really extensive body of literature that's got lots of different names. So one of the names that you might hear is the Finn cycle, um, or in English, it's also called the Fenian cycle sometimes. In modern Irish, it should be known as and in modern Gaelic, would be a name for it. So and they're just some of the names. It's lots of different names. But what it is, is a big collection of stories, of poems, of songs, of folklore, um, all centred around a sort of legendary warrior whose name is Finn or Fionn McCool. And he has a warband or a Fionn is the old Irish word for that. And it's sort of their adventures. And as you might expect some of them are quite kind of martial there's quite a lot of hunting and fighting so on the one hand it sounds like quite a sort of stereotypically masculine set of tales about you know manly deeds but actually it's something much more complex and interesting that we could maybe talk more about as well. So how is it Scottish literature how does it sort of fit into that um, role and things like that? Yeah that's I'm really glad to have a chance to talk about that because I think that's One of the reasons why I study this literature, one of the reasons that I think it's so fascinating and enduring is that we the first tales that we have are written in the language that we call Old Irish. It's also Old Gaelic. So it's the ancestor language of the the modern Gaelic languages, Irish, Gaelic, Scottish, Gaelic and Manx. So in that sense, it's Scottish because, you know, it's there in the ancestor language of modern Scottish Gaelic and an indigenous language of Scotland. And it also continues to be something that Scottish storytellers engage with right up to today. So it has a very long history in Scottish Gaelic, but also then in English in Scotland. It gets translated, it crosses that language barrier into English in Scotland, most famously in the 18th century in the work of James Macpherson, who was this very, very famous character who produced a series of poems in the 1750s and 60s that he published. And they tend to be called Ossianic poetry, Ossianic uh, works. And Ossian is a character in this, this cycle of stories in, in Gaelic. Ossian or Ossian is the son of the main hero, 
Finn. So in that sense, it's Scottish in another way. It's, it belongs to another of Scotland's literary traditions, but actually it's also part of the Scots literary tradition going right back to the, the sort of later Middle Ages. Barbers the Bruce in the 14th century makes reference to this. And um, so we don't have big, big works of literature that belong to this corpus in Scots, but we have these characters being referenced by Scots writers in the late, late Middle Ages. So I think that's a really good grounds for saying this is a very, you know, Scottish literature. It's there in the main languages that Scotland has produced literature in for most of the history of Scottish writing. So it's Scottish in that sense. Of course, it's also not Scottish. It's also Irish. It's also Manx. And there's long literary traditions outside of Scotland to do with this material. And there was tussles, especially in the 18th century, the sort of ownership of this became quite controversial. And in the wake of James Macpherson's publications that drew a lot of global attention to this material, you start getting lots of sort of Irish antiquarians and scholars writing back and saying, hold on, this stuff is ours. Like, why, why, why are you trying to claim it for yours? So nationality and this literature gets very bound up but it's not that's not the first time that that that's a question it's a question in earlier writing as well is is this character Finn Scottish or Irish a Scottish sort of scholar Hector Boyce writes about him in the sort of 15th or 16th century saying that this character is Scottish you know he's associated with St. Patrick who's very much associated with Ireland but he's a Scot but Scot as a term the meaning of Scot changes over time as well so that needs to be sort of factored in but basically it's it's very Scottish. It's also not exclusively Scottish. Um, and it's also global because through Macpherson in particular, this stuff went viral and it, it got translated out of English that Macpherson was writing in. So we have the Gaelic sort of story, then you have this English life for this material. And then because Macpherson goes is so famous so quickly in the second half of the 18th century, it's translated really quickly into all the major and some minor European languages. So we know, for example, that um, Napoleon carried a little copy of these poems around, of Macpherson's poems, not the original Gaelic. Um, He carried that around. We know that the Swedish royal family even today use this name Oscar in their royal family. And if you stop a person on the street today in Glasgow and say, what, what, what does the name Oscar mean? Is it, you know, where in Europe or where in the world do you think it's from? A lot of people will associate it with sort of Germanic languages or Scandinavia, but it's, it's a Gallic name. And it just enters into that whole world through this sort of German romantic enthusiasm for ideas about Scotland and the Highlands and they come from Macpherson, they come from this, this body of literature. So I think this is fascinating for me because it's quintessentially Scottish and also just global and also Gaelic and Irish. It's so many different things. There's lots of kind of concentric circles that you can kind of fit this literature into. And it forces us to think about what we mean when we talk about a national literature or Scottish literature, because literature can be enjoyed by anyone anywhere. <laughs> you know, literature doesn't have a nationality. But this idea of ownership, uh, you know, it's been a live issue with this literature for centuries. That's so interesting to hear how um, sort of far it stretched. Um, just out of interest, do you know how far it has possibly gone, the story? Yeah, it's not just one story. It's it's a whole living tradition around the same characters. That's also what's fascinating about it for me in that you get the same sorts of stories renewed and retold and and told again and again. Sometimes you get the same specific plot and that's 
storyline, you know, lasts for a thousand years. You know, we're talking about over a millennium of thinking about these characters. Geographically, I mean, the whole there's nowhere in the globe, I would say, that hasn't that you couldn't trace some awareness of this literature to at this point. You know, it goes to North America, not via English necessarily uh, in the most notable way, but via Irish and Scottish Gaelic speaking emigrants. So, for example, uh, thinking about Scotland um, and kind of Scottish year stories or tales, this stuff is very big among sort of diaspora communities in Cape Breton, Nova Scotia. Um, and we, we have lots of, of versions of these stories collected in the 20th century from the sort of um, descendants of Gaelic speakers who were cleared from the highlands and the islands. And they preserve this stuff, this material. And that that raises lots of questions for me as well. You know, you find yourself in a brand new world, very different. You've had this incredibly traumatic experience being sort of pushed out of your, your home as a community. And the thing that you bring with you is, is your language and your stories. And you, I wonder what sort of stability and comfort these stories represented for, for very traumatized generations afterwards. So for me, that's really interesting as well. We know that there's interest in James McPherson all around the world in particular. So I think he's probably the node that you could use to track the globalization of this most easily, but there is a global aspect via the Gaelic languages as well. So how old would you say this material is? Yeah, (laughs) as I said, it's a really big sort of body of connected texts and the oldest written references that we have to these characters and these scenarios date from the, as, as early as we have the writing of secular literature in the Gaelic or Gaelic language. So that is about the seventh century. We start to see it becoming really popular and getting longer connected tales in the 8th, 9th, 10th centuries. And then in the 12th century, it seems to get really popular. And in particular, we start getting very long texts. And um, there's a particularly long text that I work a lot on called Ogle of Nishinoruk. That translates to mean something like the conversation or the colloquy of the old people. And that's about 80,000 words. So it's a long, a long work today. That would be, you know, a sizable sort of paperback if you printed it that way. And that is dated to around 12, maybe 1225, that kind of time. And at that period, this stuff became the most popular kind of fiction is the wrong word to use because that concept wasn't really there in the language at that point. But for literature of entertainment, we might call it, um, this becomes the most popular branch of that then in the 13th century and onwards. That's a, a mostly a prose tale. But soon afterwards, we start getting um, poetry being the most dominant way of telling stories, telling tales about these characters. So we have things called lays, which is just an English word translated out of the Gaelic languages. Uh, Ballad is sort of an equivalent word in English, although can sometimes mean something a little bit different. And um, the lay tradition. So these are poems that we have in writing, but we know that they were often sung as well. And they survive their their kind of there in the 12th century manuscripts they keep getting written keep getting written in the 18th and 19th centuries in Ireland you have masses of writing of this stuff there's huge amounts of manuscripts surviving on the Scottish side we don't get so much of the writing but the singing the oral the actual songs retain their popularity in Scotland it seems so the sort of different bits of the of the tradition get preserved in the different places but there are still Gaelic singers today who who have in their repertoire these these lays so it's still a living tradition in that sense so in some sense how old is it well it's it's now it's contemporary in another sense this literature is you know a thousand 
300 years old. So it, that's also extraordinary for me that it's it's so enduring. It's both so old and contemporary and it's both written literature and oral literature and it's it's poetry and prose. It's tales that you would listen to as a, a kind of bedtime story, but it's also a song. So it's 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 very multifaceted. I think that's what interests me about it. It's hard to pin it down. It just keeps surviving by sort of changing and, and mutating a little bit. I know you said just previously that there was quite a lot of popularity for the sort of tales in, was it the 1200s? Yeah. Um, do you know what would have maybe sparked that? Like, was there a move or a migration that really kind of got the story going? Yeah, this is a great question. You you sort of can anticipate the essay questions I like to set when I'm teaching this. <laughs> yeah, I'm really interested in what happens that that makes this the most popular type of storytelling. Um, in some ways, it's a time of great social flux change all across Western Europe in a specifically Irish context where our longest sort of textual stories we can definitely say that they're circulating in Ireland in writing they probably were also circulating in Scotland in writing but we don't have them in very early manuscripts that are definitely Scottish but anyway in both both these places the the most recent sort of social upheaval social revolution if you like the, the big change in circumstances is the coming of the Normans so, for example, this text of Nishnorok seems to have been written in, you know, a generation after the first coming of the Normans, i.e. the people who then become the English, into Ireland from the 1160s, 1170s. So if, if the Normans first arrive on Irish soil in 1169, 1170, and then are rising up in power and influence and political sort of power by about 1200, if you're writing this huge tale in 1225, it'd be very odd not to in some way reflect that, that very changing social circumstance. And the story is set in the distant past. So it's, it's not about the 1200s. It's written, we think, in the 1200s, but it's set in the 430s. <laughs> so it's imagining St. Patrick, this patron saint, coming to Ireland for the first time to spread Christianity and he meets these heroes, these, these great giant warriors who are hundreds of years old themselves. And they've somehow mysteriously lived on. There's no explanation given. Why are they still alive? We don't know. But a few of them are still alive. Now, Finn is dead. He's the main character, but he's not there. But his son and his sort of friend, and then they have 18 others or 16 others. I can't remember whether they're 18 in total. or. But they are walking around the country sort of being very sad that their day has passed, that all their their beloved companions are dead and why are they still living? What's going on? And they meet St. Patrick who says, oh, you know, who are you guys? And I've come to bring this new faith and this new learning and this new worldview. And they have this sort of moment of tension because they're pagans. They are representative of a sort of um, indigenous Irish culture. And Patrick is an outsider with a new philosophy. So they're sort of like, oh, how will they get on? And in fact, what, what happens in the text is that St. Patrick shows himself to be very keen to learn from them and to sort of integrate with them, to take them with him into Christianity, but also to open Christianity to their learning and their worldview. So it's a very inclusive and accommodating sort of idea of what the Irish past was like. And it reconciles different phases of, of Irish identity and Irish history. And if you want to then think, well, why in an author, why would an author in the 1200s be writing about this? You might think that this author, we might say it's a male author. We, we don't know. Uh, there's a bit of debate about 
authorship, but all our all our named known authors happen to be uh, men with one or two exceptions. So I'll say he here just for the sake of it. So this author, he may have been thinking, well, I'm living in this time of huge social change. So effectively what's happened is that there's been an invasion and the, the, the most important political players in the country have changed. So these outsiders have come in with this new language. They're speaking French. It used to be that the most powerful culture in this country was the Irish Gaelic culture. Now there's this challenge at the top from French speaking people. How do I sort of deal with that? How do we think about what what it means to have incomers coming in and, and the sort of balance of our society, our communities to change? And I think this idea of thinking about St. Patrick and how he integrated into the into the country and showed respect to it. I think that might have been a, a sort of strategy for thinking and coping with huge societal change. Um, that's my view. There would be other ways of thinking about it. But for me, I think it might have been quite therapeutic to, to think about a successful integration of outsiders. But you also were asking, why would this have been popular? And an, another reason, of course, is that French-speaking uh, Normans come into the country, but that's not the first time that Gaelic culture or Gaelic culture comes into contact with outside cultures. We know that both Irish Gaels and Scottish Gaels were incredibly kind of linked in to continental thinking. This is They weren't stuck away in these little islands, you know, on their own in the mist and the rain. They were very much part and parcel of Western uh, European intellectual life. And they, even without contact with the Normans in their own countries, they, they knew about what was fashionable in world literature. And there is a change in fashion and in literary taste in 12th century France. And they start writing stories about knights and chivalry and romantic love. These are all sort of new things that become fashionable. And we see all those things, I think, starting to be reflected in this in this body of work, possibly because it was about male warriors already, um, especially young male warriors. It maybe was seen as a sort of indigenous equivalent to knights and that process of becoming a knight, undergoing a sort of rite of passage and then becoming the sort of Christian warrior. That's what a knight was doing in, in these French tales. So it may have also been seen as very appropriate and fashionable and showing that Gallic culture was keeping up with what what all the neighbouring cultures were doing in their literature at the time. It's really interesting to hear about um, sort of the context of these tales and um, find out a bit more about that. Can you outline what sort of tales and poems do belong to this literature? Like what are they about and what their purpose is? Yeah, I've said a little bit about this main text, Og of Nishinorok, already. Um, and that's, that's notable for having St. Patrick, this Christian saint, sort of in dialogue with these warriors. The main story is that they're sort of walking around the island of Ireland and talking about different places that they see and therefore telling stories about the past. So they're saying, oh, now we see this. But in the past, when Finn was alive, it was like that. And they'll tell a story about a, a battle or a hunt. Those are frequent things, sometimes about a woman, maybe an elopement or Usually, they're usually quite disastrous attempts to sort of marry off warriors to women that quite uh, don't quite work a lot of the time. That's one definite sort of strand of stories. Probably the most famous, longest story before that story, so from the twelve hundred, from the twelfth century, the eleven hundreds, is the boyhood deeds of Finn Machanivra Finn, and that is, as it, the name would suggest, it's sort of how this great hero, you know, what was his family background? Was he destined to be a hero? What hardships did he face as he tried to kind of come into that identity? Those are definitely there. 
that gives the impression that we're dealing with quite a kind of macho sort of gung-ho <laughs> boys out fighting other boys and and that is there it's definitely part of it but there's also which I think is very interesting a sort of uh, slightly submerged but definitely there sort of interest in in gender and in gender identities in in the story so one of the other probably most famous prose tales is a, a slightly later sort of early modern tale called Torith Yermida Agus Gráinne, the pursuit or the elopement, the sort of the chase of Diarmid and Gráinne, Diarmid being a male warrior, very famous male warrior, and Gráinne being a sort of princess. And so on the one hand, that feels a bit sort of old-fashioned, you say, mo, say, mo, you know, these characters go off and the point is marriage and, and that's it. But actually, if you read it, it's, it's not like that at all. She's the one who dictates the action. She's um, this daughter of the High King of Ireland she's being forced to marry this old hugely famous hugely respected warrior Finn but she's our Fionn at this stage but she doesn't want to and she um so sets about making a different future for herself so first of all she drugs all the men at a feast and leaving out a few men that she thinks are quite nice looking and then kind of goes to them in turn saying what about it and they go no way there's no way I'm going to go against my boss effectively and through ver- various methods anyway she manages to force this man Dearmond into eloping with her so taking her away which of course sets him against his brothers in arms there's a there's a lot of narrative tension there he's not particularly interested in her he'd prefer to have been loyal to to Fiona and over time we see their relationship change it's quite it's quite a a daring text in in some ways for 20th century eyes in that you know she dares him to have sex with her she says you know why are you being such a wuss about this you know she's going through a um a, a bit of water splashes up her thigh and she's like that drop of water is braver than you are you know so there's all these sort of little things that are quite surprising to read if you think it's going to be quite staid it's not and the other thing is that the story ends with her so so Dermot dies um, and Fionn has the ability to save him from death. He has a, a particular sort of magical ability that if he gives him a drink of water from his cupped hands when he's dying, he can bring him back to life. And he refuses to do it. And his own sort of war band criticize him and abandon him for this. So there's a, a, it's a really tense storyline in terms of the dynamics of this all male group. And the end of the story in lots of versions is different. Manuscripts have slightly different endings, but there's, you know, we see Gráinne, the woman, sort of sending her children out to seek revenge. So this, you know, she's still dictating the action in some of those versions. And in some of the poems, these lays that we have surviving, there's a whole sequel, a follow-on story about their daughter going out to avenge the father's death as well. So it's a very, it's, it's, Almost because it's quite sort of concerned with men, it's quite androcentric. It's really extra interesting when we see these kind of female characters exercising a lot of agency in traditionally male ways. So it's, for me, that's very interesting. There's recurring uh, plot points, like in the lays in particular, one of the big storylines tends to be that um, the Fian are like the national army of Ireland. And there's invaders coming from abroad and they tend to always call them the sort of Vikings or the Scandinavians. The Lachlanich is the, the term that's used and they're coming. And then you have to see the Fian sort of defending Ireland against foreign invasion. So for that reason, something that I'm really interested in, I'm doing a big project on this. Or I'm doing a big project at the moment that incorporates this is the idea that the Fian become a symbol of Gaelic fighting identity over time. 
in the University of Glasgow, we have this amazing 18th century collection of manuscripts called the, the MacLagan Collection. James MacLagan was a Church of Scotland minister, but he was also a chaplain to the Black Watch Regiment. And they, this is in the, the 18th century when they're fighting. So he's with them in America during the War of Independence, so 1770s. He's in Ireland when there is a lot of political um, unrest and violence trying to g- kind of get the British army out. And so he's got a very interesting perspective. He's he's collecting these stories at the same time as accompanying Scottish soldiers. At the time, they're acting as agents of the British Empire, but they still have a very strong Gaelic Highland warrior identity. So, you know, it's very easy to see why this literature appealed in those circumstances. Um, on the Irish side, even today, the Irish Defence Forces use insignia and symbols for all their sort of um, visual branding, if you like, the kind of visual um, badges and things that they wear and the flags that they'll have. They reference this literature too, because they are building on that idea that this is the army of Ireland. So it's really interesting to see that this has been used at different times by the British army and, and more recently the Irish army. I think that's fascinating to sort of track. Yeah, me too, definitely. I think that's, it's always interesting to sort of hear about how they play in and how they relate to modern day as well. So given that some of the stories you are talking about are over a thousand, year, a thousand years old, what kind of relevance of these tales do they have like to Scotland today? Well, apart from just, I think the literature of Scotland is relevant to Scotland today. You know, the, the, the traditions, the centuries of, of storytelling is in itself just for the very reason that it's part of the story of Scottish literature, I think that's relevant. But in lots of other ways, you could be traveling around Scotland and seeing places or, or, or looking at place names or, or the names of archaeological features, for example, that reference these stories, but you might not be able to make the connection unless somebody tells you. So I think that would be one reason why I'd love to see a greater awareness in Scotland today of these stories, because it would help people understand a bit more the landscape and the, the sort of names that they are, they're passing through or living in. For example, there's different places, you know, if you go to Arran, for example, there's a, a stone circle that's described as Finn McCool's cooking pot. And, you know, if you if you I've gone to see it myself, it's on this lovely macher and you just think, well, that's a lovely circle of stones. You know, I'll take a picture. But if you realize the story, you realize that they're big stones and they're sort of describing a very big circle on the on the sort of moor. And if you know that Finn McCool was meant to be a giant, it makes sense that these stones are meant to describe the circumference of the cooking pot then it, it just helps you suddenly visualize these absolutely massive, gigantic figures. And you suddenly start looking at this landscape with, you know, hills and mountains in a different way when, you know, you start scaling everything up. And it just, for me, it was quite a transformative moment in how I was just imagining these stories once you see something concrete in the landscape. There's also um, stones and Colonsey that are meant to have been his limpet hammers. So this idea that this giant would have used these huge stones to sort of just open, you know, to get little fish out of shells. So again, it's these very sort of concrete things in the landscape that if you know about them, it just brings the story alive in, in one direction, but it also brings the landscape alive in another, in another direction. But there's also stories that go with places so like Killin in the highlands one way of understanding that name in Gaelic is to think that it means the sort of burial place of Finn it's not necessarily why it's called that but but you can make that story up very easily from the name so you know people locally would have had lots of stories about Finn there so yeah for me it really um 
enriches my experience of living in Scotland. I'm not Scottish myself. So it just gives me that extra sense of, oh, I actually have a bit of depth of understanding of where I am living now. There's also quite a lot of slight references to Finn and these stories in kind of tourism and heritage at the moment. You'll see little references in things like whiskies and, you know, heritage marketing, if you like. You can see references to Finn. And again, if you're alive to them, if you know what's behind these references, it just gives you a a better understanding of, of the world you're living in. For me, that's the main relevance. Definitely. As you say, like it gives you a bit more relevance to um, Scottish culture and things today. If someone were to not have heard of Finn McCool before or any sort of like Scottish history literature, what kind of story, tale or plot line do you think would be the most striking to a first time reader or a first time listener to these sort of tales um, that would maybe make them think, oh, this is actually very relevant? It's interesting because you can actually answer that question in a way and see how that's worked in the past by looking at what stories survived the longest, you know, in some ways they have a proven track record of being the most interesting, the ones that get told again and again. So there's a little section of the the boyhood deeds of Finn that I mentioned, that is a 12th century text about him serving as an apprentice. So he's a great warrior, but he's also a poet. So he's meant to be this sort of multifaceted character. You know, he's equally able to go out and perform great deeds of physical violence, but he's also intellectually gifted. And he has a gift of knowledge. He can see things and and know things that that are normally hidden from people. So in this story, they, they want to give an account as to how he became who he is as an adult. And so they show him training up to be a warrior with women warriors teaching him, actually. But also he trains as an apprentice to, to a poet. And this little section of the story was one of the first things I knew about Finn McCool when I was going to primary school in Ireland. This was a story that we had in our in our readers. And it's called The Salmon of Knowledge is what it's normally called as a modern tale. And it survives in Scottish Gaelic folklore as well. And it's this story about how this young boy, Finn, he he, um, well, he actually has a different name at this point in the original medieval story. But he is training as an apprentice to this poet to learn poetry, so to get an education. But for various complex backstory reasons, all the knowledge (laughs) in Irish Gaelic tradition has been concentrated into a sort of magical hazel tree, which produces hazelnuts. And then the hazelnut falls from the tree and is swallowed by a salmon. So the salmon now contains all the knowledge (laughs) that this culture values. And this old poet has set up his, you know, set his life around knowing that this will sort of happen and is living by the bank of the river in order to, to be there to seize on this happening so when this happens he catches the fish and knows that this is the moment that he'll get all the knowledge that he's ever sought and been training for but he tells his young apprentice you know cook this fish um but don't eat it and in the modern uh, folklore versions in particular we get lots of descriptions of how the boy is cooking the fish in a frying pan but he burns his thumb and as you would do if you burnt your thumb he's stuck in his mouth to sort of ease the pain but by Doing that, it meant he had the first taste of the fish. So he absorbed all of the knowledge. So that's one of the really famous little snippets that survives for a long time. Other things, things like the, these 
stories not necessarily about Finn but about his son and his sort of friends who survived to meet St. Patrick the story of how they get baptized as Christians so these great pagans become Christians those stories survive for a long time and get told and they get quite funny so the folklore is often told to be quite you know humorous um so like funny things happen to them and they think it's part of baptism and if you're listening to this as you know a very committed Christian in a Christian community you'll know it's not part of baptism and you'll be like oh they thought that was part of baptism you know but it's it's quite it's quite that that shows that it had a very sort of lasting appeal for me the story of Dermot and Gráinne is probably the one that if I was saying to somebody do you want to go and sit down and read a translation I would probably give them that as the first thing to read because I think it's got characters that really appeal you know broadly today and it has a nice balance of kind of male and female focus So, yeah, I I think if I was handing one translated book to somebody, I would probably give them that. I feel like I'm going to go and look look up these translations after this. I'm I'm very much so. Let me know what you think. (laughs) (laughs) So can non-Gaelic speakers, non-Gaelic speakers um, access these stories? Yeah, that's a good question. So as ever, a lot of our sort of medieval texts um, have been translated in very sort of academic ways. They can be a bit dry if you were just sitting down to read it as a story as entertainment the main text that Oglev Nishnorik text that I've mentioned a few times that was a popular translation came out in the late 90s in the Oxford World Classics series by Anne Dooley and Harry Rowe under the title Tales of the Elders of Ireland so in a Scotland's year of stories and tales you might not think that's the one to go for but it would be so that would be the main sort of mass market English translation that's available Otherwise, there is quite a few collections of translations. They're not necessarily from one period of time. They're sort of picking and choosing or one place. There is a a, a Scottish, a a sort of distinctively Scottish collection of the tales of Finn McCool published by Berlin. So that would probably be a place that Scottish readers might want to look first. Um, But actually, we do kind of lack good, modern, readable, sort of artistic translations, if you like. We have quite dry or not necessarily dry. I don't want to do down myself and my colleagues who translate these things. But we're dealing with, you know, difficult to translate texts and trying to be very accurate and faithful to what's in the manuscripts. Whereas sometimes a sort of more a freer um, engagement can make for a better introduction to the general readers. So I think we lack a bit of that in the thin cycle and it'd be really good to see more of that kind of translation done. If you're interested in the oral tales and songs that came out of this material in a Scottish context, there's amazing web resources. Some of them are from the University of Glasgow under the DASC project. And the other main resource I would mention to you is Tobron Dulkish, which is the uh, kiss to riches it's called uh, is in English. Uh, or Scots, and it has amazing audio clips that you can click on to get uh, sort of 20th century recordings of this material. Um, And they often come up, you can see a transcription of it and a translation into English as well. So if you're interested in the oral versions rather than the written versions, that would be a great place to go. That's great. And um, what we'll do to any listeners um, listening in today, we'll make sure all these resources are easily reachable through this podcast as well. So speaking in terms of translating and um, trying to get an authentic storyline and tale through, I know it can be quite difficult. One term mentioned in the literature is Fenian, and that term's quite problematic and it's got connotations with sectarianism um, that 
is very prevalent in Scotland today. Um, so I'm just wondering, what is the link between the two uses of the term and are they actually linked at all? So Fenian, uh, yeah, is used in English as a name for this type of literature. We talk about Fenian tales, Fenian literature. And sometimes in English, you'll hear people talking about Finn and his Fenians as if that was the name of his war band. In fact, the, the, the word in the medieval language is Fian, so his warband is his Fian, and that's a different word from the word Feine, which gives the English term Fenian, and that, in, that word Feine meant the population of Ireland or a Gaelic-speaking population. These two terms get confused or get brought together because they do sound quite alike, and when we start to get scholarship written about this literature in the 18th and 19th centuries um, in English, scholars are, feel free to sort of call it Fenian, so it's a very got an established history in relation to this literature but it is actually a different word it's not really anything to do with with this literature and if you add into the mix though it gets more complicated because we have to add into the mix that there was a political movement in the uh, 18th and um, particularly 19th centuries called Fenianism and this was a sort of radical violent political movement in uh, among Irish emigrants in America and then in Ireland as well, seeking to overthrow British rule in Ireland. And they called themselves the Fenians. And they said they did that because they were invoking this idea of the Fian. <laughs> so that means the modern usage of it in English, really the, the kind of broadest understanding of that does link Fenian as a name. We know it as a pejorative, quite insulting name for Irish or Catholic populations in Scotland, perhaps. But it goes back to this sort of identity for Irish nationalists, Irish Republicans who did see themselves in some ways as the heirs to this warband, this Fian, this Irish army. So it is quite it's quite a convoluted sort of history of the word, but but it, it is an origin, a separate word. I choose not to use it when I describe this literature because I think in a Scottish context it can be quite confusing and it can risk maybe being problematic or, or, or insulting. So I prefer not to and tend to call the literature the Finn cycle rather than referring to Fenian. But it is, it is current. You'll, you'll still see it a lot in, in scholarship and in discussion of this literature. And so just as a last question, um, what would be your number one recommendation for someone wanting to learn a bit more or sort of enter the world of like Gaelic tales and Gaelic history? Well, obviously, I would say come to the University of Glasgow and study it here. We do lots of it at the moment. My colleague, uh, Robbie McLeod, is lecturing on on a whole course on this. And I, I often do that course as well. So, so that would be one recommendation. There's increasingly stuff to find online about this literature. Usefully, there are now two accessible overviews, like books that offer overviews if you want to study uh, or read up about this literature. So um, my colleague Joseph Flahov has a, a book on the Fenian literature, I think he calls it, of uh, Ireland and Scotland, which is a very nice, it's a slim volume, but it, it kind of takes you through the story of this literature and how it evolves and how it develops. And then another colleague in University College Cork in Ireland, Kevin Murray, has a volume on the medieval stories, particularly called The Early Finn Cycle that came out with Four Courts in Dublin a couple of years ago. So those are the two volumes that I recommend to my students when they want to start and get a good handle on what this literature is. Fantastic. Thank you so much. A huge thank you to Geraldine for talking to us today. It was fascinating to hear about the adventures of Finn McCall, especially as there's just so much influence from the Finn cycle still felt today that many of us are probably taking for granted or don't even realise that we're encountering. 
both of us are definitely going to read more about his adventures. And if any of you want to do the same, or you'd like to hear more about Geraldine's work, you can find links to all of the resources and texts that Geraldine has mentioned in today's episode in the show notes. Thanks for listening to the Stories from Glasgow podcast. You can keep up to date with everything that's going on in the College of Arts, as well as find out about new episodes of the podcast by following us on social media at U of G Arts, or by visiting www.gla.ac.uk forward slash arts. This episode was produced by Sia Jackson. Music is Notion by Coma Media. See you next time.